Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 40. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people in Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man has rightly been called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers, there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of Kendaki, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thank you, Esther. Well, hi, everyone, and let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that we can be together, albeit not in the same room, but thank you that we can meet around your word and we praise you, Heavenly Father, that this is your word for us today. So we pray that you would help us to understand it, to listen, to hear it, and may your word live in each of our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of uh, my favourite shows of all time is Wallace and Gromit. And if you've never watched Wallace and Gromit, you jolly well should. Wallace is this goofy English bachelor inventor. He gets himself into more and more ludicrous situations, hurtling down a street on his motorbike without brakes, unable to see because he's gone through a washing line. There's washing across his face. And on the back of his motorbike, of course, is an inverted pyramid of 20 or so sheep. And he speaks to his... Uh, dog Gromit beside him in the sidecar and he says don't worry Gromit everything's under control and it's it's hilarious because of course everything is completely not under control and until Gromit saves the day and things work out. In this last week maybe you've been feeling like Wallace on his motorbike you know you want to say don't worry everything's under control but clearly things are not under control you know, there are basic things that we rely on. Uh, the ability to go to a cafe, to visit a friend, uh, to go to work, um, having enough money to retire on, um, even having enough toilet paper. These things have been taken away from us. And yes, we know God's in control, but wouldn't you like to see him more in control at the moment? I think the early church was in a situation just like that. So in verse 1, uh, this great persecution breaks out against the church and everyone is scattered and Saul starts arresting people from house to house to destroy the church. These events are totally outside of the control of everyone. And yes, they would have known God's in control, but like us, they just probably wanted to see God more in control. You know, sometimes the opposite can be true for us as well. Sometimes we'd like to see God less in control. What do I mean? Well, normally when obeying Jesus costs us, that's when handing him the control of our lives is very difficult. And we'd really like to see God less in control then. Well, Acts chapter 8 addresses both tendencies of us wanting God to be more in control and then less in control. So on the one hand, when all havoc is breaking loose and the church is being persecuted, um, at the very time when we want to see God more in control, what do we see? Well, rather than the persecution destroying the church, wonderfully, God uses this to grow the church and to spread his word. And then on the other hand, we're given an obvious contrast in this passage between Simon the sorcerer, who, who really wants to control God, and the Ethiopian eunuch, who's very happy uh, to sit under the control of God, and wonderfully he comes to know God. This chapter really is about who's in control. And at all times, of course, it's God. 
The surprising thing in this passage is how God shows it. How does he do it? He keeps making his word advance again and again to reach more and more people to Jesus' glory. Now, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised at seeing this. We go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the key statement in the book of Acts, the programmatic statement, which sets the agenda for the whole book. When Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And geographically, this describes what's happening in the book of Acts um, as the word of God advances out from Jerusalem to the nations. Ethnically, it also describes what happens as the gospel breaks out of its Jewish heartland to the Gentiles. In this chapter, we see the gospel go forward and jump two major hurdles in this movement outwards to the nations. First of all, we see the gospel going to Judea and Samaria. And then we see it going to the ends of the earth. This is really, really huge. Uh, we remember that Jews hated Samaritans. There was no natural inclination for them to move outwards. For more than 800 years, they'd regarded the Samaritans to the north as idolaters, as heretics, half-caste traitors. And we can only think if that's what they thought of Samaritans, to whom they were related, well, what did they think about Gentiles? So for the gospel, you see, to go out from the Jewish heartland in Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, it's got to jump some huge hurdles. Now, of course, thankfully, for we Gentiles, it did. I mean, just imagine if the gospel hadn't jumped those barriers, well, we'd be lost. We'd be completely ignorant about Jesus. None of us would know God. So how does it happen? Well, thankfully, the Lord is in control. He is the driver in this chapter. So he uses persecution to reach Samaria with the gospel. And then he directly intervenes to reach the first full-blooded Gentile from a place which back then was the ends of the earth. So two points. First of all, the word reaches Samaria. At Saul's persecution, everyone except the apostles flee to Judea and Samaria. But look at the effect. Verse 1, they spread the word of God wherever they go. Now, please pay attention. Who's doing this? It's not the apostles, is it? It's normal Christians, people like you and me. Spread the word of God, which is what we can do, even in isolation. We can spread it by passing on our favourite verses, um, Bible stories, to people out there who are now isolated. Okay, back to the story. Luke now focuses us in on Philip. Philip goes down to a city in Samaria, probably the city of Samaria, the modern-day city of Nablus, and there he proclaims Christ and he performs miraculous signs and healings and exorcisms. These are all visible illustrations of Christ's victory over death and evil. He can do this. The gospel has power and people are healed and there's, there's great joy in that city. But the gospel never sort of just enters a vacuum. It's there. Are, sorry, in this city, there are other powers at work. Enter Simon the sorcerer. Now, sorcery was widespread and common in the ancient world and still in 
parts of Africa, it is commonplace today. So if you're sick in Tanzania, you go to see a witch doctor. If you want to cast a curse on someone, you go to the witch doctor. Now, just in case you're wondering about sorcery and Harry Potter, um, the sort of sorcery in Harry Potter is leagues apart, worlds apart from uh, real sorcery. The Bible's position is that sorcery is real It does have real power because behind it are demons and therefore we're not to have anything to do with it. Why? Because sorcery involves uh, the attempt to seek control over others through the power of demons instead of trusting in God. Simon the Samaritan sorcerer does this and he had a big following. He, He amazed all the people high and low. He accepts they're calling him the great power from God. Now, enter Philip. Philip comes to the town. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's preaching the name, which is above every name in heaven or on earth, uh, Jesus Christ. And the Samaritans believe and they're baptized. And shock of shocks, so is Simon. What does this say? Clearly Simon saw Jesus' name is more powerful than any sorcery. And we think that's great, isn't it? Yes, it is. Except his behaviour is odd. He's so caught up in Philip's great signs and miracles, Philip's power, that he follows Philip everywhere. He's mesmerised, not by God, not by God's grace, but by the signs and miracles he sees, as if Philip is some sort of magician who has power which he'd love to be able to tap into and share. We have to ask, how converted is this man, really? Well, right at this moment, Simon Peter arrives with the Apostle John. They have come up from Jerusalem because they have heard the astounding news that Samaria, Samaria of all places, has accepted the word of God. And so they, apostles in Jerusalem, have come up to check it out. And what they discover is that the Samaritans had genuinely heard the gospel. They'd embraced it. And yet they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, stepping aside from this, this isn't normal. Uh, The normal pattern is for someone to believe the gospel and then they receive the Holy Spirit then and there. From this passage in Acts chapter 8, some Christians have wrongly drawn the conclusion that conversion must be a two-stage process. That is, you need to believe and are baptised, but then something else needs to happen for you really to get the Holy Spirit. Maybe, you know, a bishop needs to place their hands on your head for you to be confirmed, or maybe you need a second experience of the Spirit somehow. Uh, That's wrong. We know from Acts chapter 2, from Peter's words, that everyone who repents and is baptised receives the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the normal Christian experience. So we ask, well, why this two-stage process here? The answer is that this is God's way of highlighting that the gospel has just jumped over a huge hurdle. So geographically, it's moved out from Jerusalem to Samaria, but ethnically, it's gone the huge distance from Jews to half-Jews. And in fact, every time in the book of Acts that the gospel moves over a significant hurdle on its way outwards, there's a kind of mini Pentecost where the spirit comes on the new believers in the sight of the apostles and the apostles are there to give their thumbs up 
to these people, uh, to their endorsement of these people being as true believers as are Jewish Christians. Okay, back to Simon. When Simon sees the apostles laying their hands on the Samaritans and the Samaritans then receiving the Holy Spirit, you know, his eyes pop out of his head. He's even more astounded and he offers them money so that he can buy the ability to give this power as well. Peter rebukes him strongly. May your money perish with you. You thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. Your heart is not right before God. You are full of bitterness. You're captive to sin and you need to repent and pray and perhaps God will forgive you. Now, why is Peter being so harsh? It's because Simon is still thinking like a sorcerer, you know, wanting the control, wanting to tap into some supernatural forces, in this case, the Holy Spirit, for his own glory and advancement. This is a mindset which makes Simon God, which has Simon at the centre and the Lord, his servant. It's an issue of control. Now, friends, if that's our attitude to God, that we're the ones in control and God is the one who's just there to do our bidding, what's this saying? It's saying our hearts are not right with him. Uh, It's not Jesus who is Lord. It's not Jesus at the centre, it's us, Uh, like Simon. After being confronted by Peter, we know there's no remorse, there's no repentance prayer, there's no prayer asking for God to be in charge. All he asks is that Peter pray that he not be punished. And that's the last we hear of Simon the sorcerer. But Luke reminds us that God's the one who's in control. Because now Simon, Peter and John are doing exactly what the scattered Christians had done back in verse 4. They are proclaiming the word. They are preaching the gospel in the Samaritan villages. The word of God is going out. God is in control. The word of God is reaching out. It's jumping. It's jumped the hurdle of persecution It's jumped the centuries of Samaritan hatred. It's moved outward from Jerusalem now to Judea and Samaria. That's the first point. Where's it going next? Second point, the answer is to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Now, once again, it is God who makes this happen. So he sends an angel to tell Philip to go to the desert road leading down from Jerusalem. And as Philip goes, he meets a man who's there from the ends of the earth. He meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, Ethiopia was about as far south as you could go back then. It was at that time, literally, the ends of the earth. He is a powerful man. He's the Reserve Bank Governor of Ethiopia. He's a man with clout. He's a man with status. He's a man, an important man. He's got wealth. He's got position. But none of that counts because he doesn't know God and he knows it. And he's hungry for God. That's why he's come all the way up from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to meet God. Except he can't. He is an Ethiopian eunuch. On two counts, he is not allowed in the temple. He is a eunuch. He's deformed as a man. And as well as that, being a foreigner... Those two things means that his chances of of entering the temple to worship God, well, how do we say it? They've been cut off twice. At the temple, there was a sign which said no foreigner is to enter these walls. If they do, they will be responsible for their ensuing death. So now he's on his way home. No doubt he thinks his visit is a failure. He's sitting in his chariot. 
but he's reading the scripture, the word of God. He's got no idea what it means, but the spirit of God works with him and he tells Philip to go nearby. Philip goes and he overhears the man reading aloud and says, do you understand what you're reading? No. Well, could you explain it to me? Yes. And so beginning with Isaiah 53, Philip tells the man the good news of Jesus. And this is the news that we celebrate at Easter. That Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants because he, his life was taken from the earth? This is speaking about the cross. And Jesus was similar to the eunuch. He was a servant who'd been rejected and excluded. But unlike the Ethiopian man, Jesus had willingly handed over the control of his life. He had willingly gone into exile himself to that place of darkness away from God. He'd become estranged from God so that people like this foreigner could be accepted by God. How so? Because from the passage, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. And so this man would have understood that because of Jesus, who died for him, he could find the embrace of God and the acceptance of God, which he had never, ever known before. Well, with Simon the sorcerer, his baptism was all for show, but not for this man. There's no one there to see it. That doesn't matter. He stops the chariot and he says, why shouldn't I get baptised? And he receives in baptism the sign of God, which reminds us of sins washed away through Christ's blood. And he's filled with joy. It's a wonderful story. But as with the first story, we're meant to see where the real power lies. The spirit suddenly whisks Philip away to a place 30 kilometres away. Wow. And like the apostles Peter and John... Philip now preaches the gospel in all the villages on the 80-kilometre route home. Well, there's the chapter. This is God's word to us. It's God's word to all of us today. It's a word about his word, about the power of his word, his word about his son, this powerful word about his son which came to Samaria and then the ends of the earth carried on the lips of his people. Let me finish with two reflections. First of all, there's an obvious contrast made between the two men we meet. Both of them are baptised. Both profess faith. And yet one is a phony and the other is genuine. Our friends, on the last day, Jesus is not going to be interested in our religious credentials, in whether we've been baptised or not. What he'll be interested in is whether our hearts are right before God. According to Peter... That's the difference between a phony believer and a genuine believer. But what makes someone's heart right before God? Well, at the heart of it is the issue of control. Simon the sorcerer never really let Jesus take control. He wanted to hang on to control himself. He saw God as someone that he 
could manipulate for his own advantage. He saw God as a power source that he could buy with money. He didn't want Jesus in charge of his life. And what about you? You know, it doesn't count a hoot whether you've been baptised or confirmed or even ordained. The real issue is whether you want God in control of your life. You see, if you do, you won't be like Simon. You'll be like the Ethiopian. You will accept what God has done for you. And, you know, that is the only way you can be secure. None of us have a heart that's totally right. That's the problem. Except, of course, Jesus, who gave his life as a sin offering to make us clean. What we need is not a desire for power, but a longing to be clean. The Ethiopian official knew that difference. He was obviously hungry for God. And when he heard the news of Jesus' death explained in Isaiah 53, he had no trouble at all accepting the message because he knew that as far as God was concerned, he needed help. Uh, He wasn't in control. He needed God and he found God through what God had done for him in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, if God this morning has exposed what is true for you, that you have an issue of control, that you want to be in control, and that therefore your heart is not right. Please know that you can hand control over to God this morning by giving the reins to Jesus. There's no better one to give give the reins of your life to. He is the one who has given up his life for you precisely to bring you into fellowship uh, and relationship with God. So that's the first point. The second On the wider issue of control, this passage calls us to be open to our sovereign missionary God. You know, God is so passionately committed to seeing the gospel news spread and for people's lives to be transformed that he is going to use his sovereign power to that end. And he'll do it through his word going out. You know, when we hear of persecution, we think, oh, no, the church is going to die when we hear of, you know, people being isolated and shut in. We think, oh, no, you know, what will happen to our church? It's not going to die. God is in control and even now he's sovereignly using the very thing that we might expect to bring down his church. No, no, no. He's using it to spread his word. He did it through persecution. He's going to do it today through what's happening with us. God's concern, his primary concern is for people who don't yet know his son. People whom he can reach out to through either scattering his people who spread the word or even isolating us so that then we can spread his word. You know, so when we hear reports of persecution around the world, well, we shouldn't just pray for the Christians who are suffering. We should pray for the other people that they're going to reach. And when we hear of everyone now being shut in and isolated and um, willing to talk via social media, well, we should pray for them. We should pray for opportunities. We should reach out with the word of God. Why not share scripture verses that have been particularly encouraging for you? Why not share with someone who doesn't know God your favourite Bible story? Perhaps they now will be open to listening. You know, what is God doing in our world through this coronavirus that none of us expected? I think he's using it to slow people down who usually move too fast to listen to him. 
I think he's using it to take control away from people who normally think they're in control. I think he's using it to humble people who normally like to say they're the captain of their own lives. I think he's using it to open the ears of people who normally wouldn't give God the time of day so that now they will hear. God is calling us to trust that he is in control. He is in control even when it seems he's not. You know, just think about how God sovereignly directed Philip to the Ethiopian official. Well, I wonder, who is it that God has placed on your heart? Someone who doesn't know him. Someone that you could reach out by sharing a verse that's particularly helped you at this time. I think it's time to pray. Maren is going to lead us in prayer. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.